Good morning, Father. Uh, I ask that you get me out of the way, that your truths would be lifted up, and through the power of the Holy Spirit we would understand and obey, because that's what you commanded us to do. Be glorified, Jesus. Amen. He's the Deacon Deacon Jeff Rosignol. It's a fine blend of discipleship and entertainment. Truth is here. All right. So on Facebook, just a few days ago, there was a news feed out of I don't know what state. So this girl gets in a car crash, and they, they, they bring in all the jaws of life and everything, and they're trying to get this girl out of the car. The machines they got can't do it. Then mysteriously, this, this guy, dressed priestly, whatever that means, shows up, comes up, prays for the girl, and then new equipment on Mac shows up instantaneously. They're able to bust the girl out. And there's pictures of everything, but there wasn't one picture of this, this dude who came up and prayed with the girl. So, and it made the news from that area. And, um, but everyone saw the person, every, you know, and the girl was even asking for prayer when she was trapped in the car, and she ended up having like a gazillion broken bones. It was a pretty severe accident. But in all the pictures and everything that was done, this person mysteriously appears, prays, and then mysteriously disappears. Now, Last week I was mentioning every time a good angel showed up in the Bible, it terrified the people that were seeing it. It didn't make them get warm fuzzies and it wasn't like going down to the Hallmark store and the potpourri smells and angels flipping around like this. It terrified people because these angels are glowing in the dark, they're holy, they're awesome things. Now usually the angels that didn't terrify people were the fallen angels, the demons. Those were the ones that would romance a person. Even back in Genesis, if you take a little translation which I do unapologetically, the angels, the fallen angels, the sons of God came down saw the, the, the daughters of men and then cohabitated with them because they liked them. All right? Now, a lot of people like to think, well, that can't be. Well, you don't know what an angel is capable of or not. Clearly, they can transform themselves into humanoid form and take on some fleshliness. I don't want to get into the details of that. But anyway, all through, the t- all through that, you know, nobody ever pushed away a fallen angel, but everyone's terrified of God's angels, the holy angels, the good guy angels. Unless, of course, in the New Testament where it says you may be serving one unknowingly because they come disguised for you. And so there was a story just last week about that. Now, the reason I'm sharing that is because, well, it it just happened last week. It was right in the news feed, and then the, the local news was talking about it. And not to get all weirdo on you, but the big idea is what's called the meta-narrative. Meta-narrative means big story. And in the Bible, there's a bunch of big stories going on. There's the story of salvation. There's the story of the Christ. The Old Testament is talking about this Messiah who's going to come. This, you know, this special chosen anointed one's going to come. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, points to the Old Testament and says, Hey, that's me. And watch, I'm going to prove it. And then he goes, and you know, part of that, that uh, Old Testament prophecy is that he would pay for the sins of all of the humans. He would pay for our evilness. Sin equals evil, all right? So, and that's one major story. But another one is the story of the Christian. And the story of the Christian is that story arc where somebody is born, and as they're growing up in life, they're realizing, you know, life's pretty rough. 
You look at the people, you know, you look at your grandparents or your parents, and you're like, boy, they've had a rough time. You know, families and friends and neighbors have had rough times, and you're thinking, there's got to be more than this. And then God, by, you know, whatever way you want to call it, I call it a GCC, God's Cool Coincidence. Bring somebody into your life who shows you the scriptures, who shows you Jesus, and you realize Jesus is not a religion. And yeah, it clicks in your head, wait a minute, this is awesome. And all of a sudden the scripture becomes alive to you and you develop an interest in the things of God. And now all of a sudden you're pursuing Jesus, you're falling in love with Jesus, and it's like, it's just a miracle how that happened. And some of your favorite, famous people, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he said the hounds of heaven pursued him. And he was an atheist and a college professor, and God pursued him and chased him down. All right? He wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. So in all this, there's this big story of how people come to the Lord. But in today's popular society, there's a a whole bunch of books, a genre of books called young adult books. And in young adult books, um, what happens is there's usually a teenager. In most cases, lately, it's a lady, a girl. And what happens is she's got a rough life. Something's going on and then something happens and this, her world gets a lot bigger and all these amazing things happen and these are the most popular books out there. Movies are being made of them. They're the money makers right out there right now. Those are the big books from Harry Potter, Twilight, Maze Runner, Hunger Games, right? They're all in there, including The Hobbit, um, uh, Narnia. Some of these other books I've never read. City of Bones, I think they made a movie of that one, didn't they? State of Bones, right? So, and all these books have the same story arc to them. All right? And there's a reason for that. And for, I like the stat. I want to bring it up again. Most of these books that right now are written by female authors, and most of the heroes are women. So in all these cases, and a lot of the times, it's a dystopia. I almost wanted to pause and mention that if there was ever a time when it truly is a dystopia, it is now. So for young teens who want to live for Jesus, who want to live this story out, now is the time to follow Christ. Because in our country alone, if you've been watching those Planned Parenthood videos, we are truly living in horrific uh, dystopia and this country between the White House turning to rainbow colors and the butchering of babies we are in a very demonic worshiping time for you to live for Jesus is so important if you're up for the calling if you're not interested in the things of God and the things of Christ then you are part of the dystopia and your destiny is hell and you will bring death with you as you grow up into adulthood and vote for more demonic presidents and demonic worshipping politicians who love to murder the unborn who love to promote sexual immorality who love death and stealing and lying right? that is so they don't even pretend to hide it anymore. We truly are in a dystopia. And the fact that God has not crushed our nation yet um, is grace upon mercy and upon grace. Now, some people say that, you know, that, well, God's going to punish us now that the White House turned rainbow colors. If you read uh, Romans chapter 1 very clearly, the rainbow-colored White House is a judgment of God because 40 years ago, 
we rejected God. And what happened after we rejected God 40 years ago? There was a sexual revolution where now all of a sudden fornication was no longer a sin. Then in the 70s, Roe versus Wade, now we can murder the children and the consequences of this free sex society. And then in the 80s and 90s, we made sure to get God out of the rest of everything, and now sexual immorality of any kind is okay. It's just a snowballing effect of devil worship, of hating God. And the death is, is abundant. So we truly are in one of these dystopias. It's just that if you're born in it, if you're still in high school and you're born in it, it's the norm. It's not the norm. You've got to look in history just a little bit beyond the years you're alive. And even for if you're 70 or 80 years old, you've got to look a little further back. There was a time when certain behavior was never, ever, ever accepted, even by the bad guys. Even the Democratic Party of 90 years ago would not accept the demon worship that is taking place today. It would never have happened. So we got to look bigger than our own life. You know, as you grow up, you know, um, we were looking at video games just the other week, uh, a, a documentary the kids and Michelle are watching and showing all the different video games. And I guess there was one video game where it was just light blips on a screen and you actually put a film on the TV screen. Does anyone remember that? And it was just like Pong, but you could make it put things. You know, and nowadays kids play on these things and they don't think anything of it. You know, but it wasn't long ago when they didn't exist. So what I'm trying to say is even though we're within a certain time, that's not how it was. And not saying it was better back then, but I'm saying is we gotta look beyond our own lifespan to see what's really happening. So and to set you free. So, back to this. In, these, in the meta-narrative, and everything that's exciting about these books, is that, first of all, there's this person, they're living in a mundane world, Harry Potter's hiding under the, you know, living under a stairwell, right? The girl with the Twilight books, she's just a, a moody chick who lives in a state where the sun never comes out, right? Which is Washington State, just rains all the time, right? And then the invitation happens where you just can't say no, the circumstances come in and you're pulled into this you can't say no if you wanted to there is no choice all right and then chapter 3 is you discover there's a way bigger world than you first thought and there's a lot more going on than what the eyes can see in twilight remember what happens in twilight why are the vampires always hiding from the light in twilight cuz they sparkle all right, when they get into the sunlight, they sparkle. Now, you know, all the young girls are now hoping they can get their vampire boyfriends into a field on a sunny day to watch them sparkle without their shirt on, right? But then in all these other books, in the Chronicles of Narnia, they go through the wardrobe and they're in a whole new world. But it was just in the closet in the back room that nobody goes to is this whole new world. All right, all these book series, everything, everybody, all of a sudden, bam, they get hit with this whole new world. It's bigger than they ever thought. I remember as a 20-year-old baby Christian, and this pastor was kind of training me, and it's when the, the, the sin switch clicked on, when it was never there before. And I brought a Time magazine to him. I said, I don't know what was on the cover. I'm like, this is overwhelming to me. Because now all of a sudden I'm starting to see the bad when I never saw it before. And he's, his answer to me was, we'll get used to it. Congratulations, you're starting to see through the biblical lies. And it's, there's way more that's going on. 
But in this one, what we're going to realize is that in chapter 4 is that there's a great war in realizing you are part of it. You're either on the right side or the wrong side, but you are part of this great war. And that's what we're going to unpack as you're being swept into this. And now, again, this is the story of the Christian. If you're not a Christian, you just might go back to your little fantasy books, and that's as good as it's going to get. But if you want to live it, it's terrifying to live for Jesus. It's complicated to live for Jesus. And it's the most amazing, exciting, and fulfilling life you could ever have. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, I'll give you life to the full. And it has nothing to do with religion. You have to kill religion to live for Jesus. Alright? Let's move into this. So first, I like to always quote from the catechism, uh, the Westminster Catechism on this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Earlier we mentioned the purpose. That's the side of heaven. The purpose is to love God and man and make disciples who love God and man. But the chief end, the reason you or I are created for our long term, because everybody lives forever. And how are you going to live forever? Are you going to live as an enemy of God forever? That won't be good. Or are you going to live as someone who's loved and loved God? All right? And it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we're made for. So now... I always say, does that excite you? To love God and enjoy Him forever? Does that even compute in our brains? Do we go, boy, yeah, that's, that's it, man. I just want to enjoy God forever. We don't even know what that means, do we? Right? That's kind of like, what? All right. But let me put it to you this way. Think of the most exciting... This is, I can only set you on the right trajectory and then explode it. Think of the most exciting, pleasurable thing you've enjoyed yet in your life. Okay, maybe it was going to your favorite sports team. Maybe it was, you know, as a teenager and you finally made it to Hershey Park with your friends. What was that event that it was just full of joy and happiness and everybody was just loving the moment? Okay? Go a gazillion times beyond that. And that is walking to the presence of God. It is that Christmas party slash everybody's joyous. Everybody feels great because everything is great, but it has no end and it just keeps getting bigger and better. All right? That's what it means to love God and enjoy Him forever. Also, forever. How long does forever last? Eternity. It's a long time. Do you think for one second that God can keep your interest, keep your focus, keep your attention for eternity? You think He can do that? Do you like the things He made for you on earth? Is there something on this planet that you like? Okay? Well, God made all of that, and this is cursed. And God's going to trash it up. Oh, you like that? Well, wait, let me burn this up. Gone. Check out what I've got built next. All right, that's living for God, glorifying God, enjoying Him forever. But we've got to take a moment to think about that. So in chapter 4 is the spiritual warfare. And now this is where the fun is. Like, give an example. This church is 50% empty. For some ungodly reason, there's a group of Christians who can't seem to make it on a Sunday morning. It's not like they don't know. It's not like it wasn't in their schedule, and it's not like they're flat out disobeying a command of God to be here, because they are. 
But I know why it's taking place. Because there's a spiritual battle going on. Now, Harry Potter. Did Harry Potter ask to have an enemy in his books? He's a kid. He's got a scar on his forehead. He's trying to figure things out. He barely makes it to school. And already he's got a bad guy who wants to squash him dead. He didn't even do anything yet. Right? He's already got a bad guy that wants to get him. So he's in a fight whether he likes it or not. I'm mentioning Harry Potter because that was a huge series and very popular because it rang true with that young adult thing. Narnia. The four kids finally make it into the land and is it a sunny paradise beach when they first make it in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe? Does anyone remember? They get... What? It was until they found the white queen. Yeah, you read the books ahead. She knows what I'm talking about. You're right. When the white queen gets there, she makes a perpetual winter. And the four kids are prophesied to help defeat the White Witch and bring springtime and summer back to Narnia. So the kids, even not even knowing, entered into a battle where they're the chosen ones to pick up the fight. Okay? And of course, we all know, I don't know, I had to Google this, but I guess in the first book, this guy with the ruthless name of James, all right, he's the bad guy. Now, for some reason, he wants to kill the girl. Anyone want to explain why he's the bad guy? Anyone know? Okay. (laughs) Okay, he's the bad guy. Even though they're all vampires, all hanging out together, eating people. Well, not the good guy vampires. They gave up. They just eat deer like West Virginians, right? (laughs) So, but but the fact is, there is a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual warfare. And if God calls you and brings you into this new world, His world, which isn't new, it's kind of like the fulfillment of what you're really seeing, there's three enemies. The world, and an example of the world is the White House turning into a rainbow. It's that system that hates God. So when it's the world, it's that system that's always looking to push God away. Then the flesh, the flesh is your flesh and my flesh. All right. Today, my back is letting me know that wood is heavy. Okay. Um, that's just one example of the flesh. The other examples of the flesh is the desires in us that are not of God. Okay, those desires that are evil. Now there are desires that are not evil, and then there are desires that are evil. And usually, it's when we try to get something that God gave us—a God-given desire—without God. That's how you know it's of the flesh. And then, of course, the enemy himself, um, he's out to get you. Although I use in this picture of David and Goliath, when God is empowering the small, there's nothing that can, can stop it. Okay, God always wins. So, and of course, here's the verse I use, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, it was, it was some sort of brain surgeon doctor dude thing I was hearing on a, a podcast saying that our brains are actually working very hard to filter out things so that we don't see what else is going on. And to me, that makes sense. And I used this illustration last week. Our eyes 
see only a small sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. Imagine if our eyes could see radio waves. That would be weird, right? But our eyes are only designed to see a certain little sliver of it. But there's way more. We know it every time we turn on the radio. There's way more in that electromagnetic spectrum. Okay? Um, Same thing here. There's a lot more, and God's telling us outright, there's a lot more. And now, there's a story right out of, I'm going to take a couple stories out of of, uh, the Old Testament to show you. Elijah and God's army. Listen to this story. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And I'll just tell you the second part. So now this whole army's coming to attack. God asked, uh, Elisha asked God with a spiritual army, just make these humans blind. Boop! He makes them blind. And then what he does is he says, okay, army, the bad guys over here, follow me. And he takes them right into Samaria, where they're surrounded by Israel. Says, okay, God, turn the lights on. The, ar- the army gets their eyes turned back on, see that they're surrounded. They don't kill them. They give them food and send them back. And then the Syrian army doesn't attack again. That's pretty cool. Okay? There's a lot of cases where God squishes them dead. But in this particular case, it's, he, he uses his superior power to say, No, 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 I got you. You're at nothing. Okay, here's some bread and water. Go home. So in this case, Gabriel's detained by a fallen angel from trying to tell Daniel something. So Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when he gets a problem or he has a dream, he starts praying. And the moment he starts praying, God sends angels to tell him things. Alright, and in this case, in Daniel 10, 10 through 14, and behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He saw an angel. Here's Daniel, who's already seen visions of angels, okay? And he sees another vision of an angel, and what's he do? He freaks out, falls on his face, and the angel has to come up and say, No, 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 you can get up. I won't squish you. You can get up, okay? And then he says to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days, for the visions is the day is for days yet to come. So here it is. Daniel gets a vision, he prays, nobody comes. No answer from God for twenty one days until finally ah, an angel shows up on the scene and he freaks out. And then he picks him up 
And he says, I would have come to you sooner, but other angels, fallen angels of the kingdom of Persia, was hindering me from getting to you. So God called reinforcements in Michael, an archangel, a a prince angel, to come in and whoop up on him so I could make it to you. That's what he's saying. Okay, spiritual warfare. Genesis 18 is a really cool story, and I'm just going to read you highlights of that one. And in that story, um, Abraham gets visited by three people, right? One of them he calls Lord. And I'll just highlight some of that story. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And then he goes and feeds them. He gives this one of those three he calls Lord. We believe that's an incarnate or pre-incarnate Christ. And then two angels. He fed them. They ate. This Lord and these angels ate his food. Alright, just to let you know, I'm just going down to the... Scenes. So after they're done eating, the Lord said to Abraham, let me get down to the verse. Yeah, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Okay? So so as they're going, Abraham feeds them food, these spiritual beings, and then they're going on to crush Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord, you know... I can almost see he's got kind of maybe smile on his face saying, should I tell Abraham what we're about to do down there to those towns? <laughs> Knowing that Abraham's going to have a problem with it because his nephew's down there. Okay? So just cool interaction. Here's another powerful one. Is Isaiah sees the Lord and seraphim. Not just angels. We think angels. We think of those, again, those potpourri-filled, smelly things or weird uh, statues. But... Here's a cool vision in Isaiah 8, uh, 6, 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for me? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So here's a prophet of God who's already chosen by God. The moment he sees God in his glory, which again we believe is an incarnate Christ, surrounded by six-winged angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Right? And that God is so holy that the angels can't touch the ground. They gotta cover their feet. They can't look at God. They have wings to cover their head from the glory of God as they serve around His throne. Because God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. That is to the extreme that God is holy. And we are not. And it's that characteristic of God that humans hate the most. And why is that? Look what happened to Isaiah. When he even got a hint of God's glory, he said, woe is me. All right, and that's what happens to us. And I'm going to talk about the using the Bible in just a few minutes. And every time we use the Bible, the same thing happens. People get an Isaiah experience. They go, ugh, your Bible does not make me feel good. It doesn't make you feel good because God is holy and you and I are not. And we always have a similar experience. And notice the angel went and found a way to atone for Isaiah's guilt and sin. Okay, there's a lot of cool stuff out of that. The cool one that I'm always kind of, I was kind of envious of this is the tent of meeting in Moses. See, when, when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness and they all had their tents, Moses had a special tent he put outside the camp. Not the tabernacle, but a special tent. And when Moses would go out to that tent, the glory of God that was visibly seen by everybody all the time would lift up and go over and float over that tent. And what the scripture says is uh, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called in the tent, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So here's a cool thing. So listen how scripture describes that. Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God is holy. Right? Holy, holy, holy. And the fact that he would give human two seconds is a a glorious thing. And Joshua wanted it so bad that even when Moses would leave, Joshua is like, I ain't leaving. I am staying right here in the glory of God. You all can go back and eat your manna. I'm going to hang out with the creator of the universe. Okay? Which is cool. Now, here's something that isn't in the Scripture. I wanted to add this. Right before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 
the, um, a historian called Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. Um, they mentioned something that everybody saw. And if you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, you can look west and you can see the city. There's, there's these really cool hills. All right? And this, the sky there is very big and very open. But look what he said. He wrote this in A.D. 75. Besides these signs, a few days after the feast, on the one and twelfth day of the month, whatever that says, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were, were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. That's a nice way to saying, oh no, let's get out of here! Okay, everybody's looking up, and you know, back then they did not have jet planes. Okay? And if your only means of transportation is a chariot and you see some vehicle flying around in the clouds, what would you call it? What would you liken it to? We've got Star Trek to liken it to. They had chariots. Okay? So this vision is taking place right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. Something big was going down. Okay? That's not in the Bible. So take that with a grain of salt. Did it happen or didn't it? I think Jerusalem's the capital of the world, and certainly it's going to be very shortly anyway. And uh, I just think that's cool. All right? Interesting history. So now, now we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's the deal. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are chosen to be part of this whether you like it or not. You're chosen to move into this battle. All right, Battles, nobody likes a battle. Teen guys like a battle because they think it's like the video games, that they can drink soda and eat Doritos while they're doing it. Not in real life. In real life, the real battle means you might have to come to church on a Sunday morning and it's inconvenient. It means you might have to talk to your friend about Jesus and tell him to stop sinning and it's very uncomfortable. Okay, It means we pay a price to give glory to God in our lives. And uh, here it is in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, and then look at verse 10 through 12. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're almost done, and I'm going to give you an example of that. But first, I just want to unpack something here. This term Gentile means non-Jew, okay? And Paul, Peter is talking to Jews and Gentiles. And he's distinguishing between the saved and unsaved, those who belong to God and those who don't belong to God. And at one time, I did not belong to God. Once I was not part of God's people. I was a sinner living a sinful life. And now I am part of God's people. Once I did not receive mercy, now I have received mercy. You do that. Put your name in there. All right? Have you received God's mercy? Or haven't you? If you don't know that you've received God's mercy, then you haven't received God's mercy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know what the Scripture is talking about, about receiving God's mercy, you haven't received it. And the Scripture says you're by nature an object of wrath, meaning God's going to crush you. Because Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, my sheep know me, and I know them. I know I received God's mercy because I wouldn't stand a chance otherwise. I'm the biggest sinner, I'm the biggest evil dude in this room, but I'm going to heaven because Jesus is not going to condemn me for being a filthy, rotten scumbag. Can you say that? Okay? Let's move on. We're almost done. Hang in there. Don't fall asleep on me. Woo! Okay. <laughs> now God takes people and uh, create makes them into ambassadors. Now, technically speaking, if you want your hermeneutic just right, that means how you read your Bible. Um, he's talking about the apostles. The apostles. The apostles are ambassadors for Christ. But Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new. Creation, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a two-hour sermon right here. Know this theology. It's amazing. This is the good news. This is the awesome news. This is the reason to get up and eat your cereal right here. Okay? This is it. Even this verse alone. It's like, oh, where do I start? This is so much. This is so awesome. All right? But this is what makes a Christian a Christian. Get your head around this. Know what this means and go tell somebody. All right? This is it. I'm trying to be quick because I want to give you a story. First of all, in Ephesians, back in Ephesians 6, I used a girl picture here since, you know, we've got a bunch of teen girls, okay? And the whole youth group is teen girls, right? So, spiritual battle, use spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6, 13 through 18, take up the whole armor of God. 
to withstand the evil day. And it goes on to say, the belt of truth, the breastplate. How many of you know the armor? Raise your hand if you know the armor for most parts of it. Great. What is the shield of? Sword of? Truth. Uh, yeah, is it the sword of truth? The word of God. It's the word of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helmet of? Salvation. There we go. Breastplate? Righteousness. All right, what's the belt? Truth. That's the truth. Belt of truth, right. And what's about the feet? That's right. Got to be ready to go tell. Someone needs to hear about Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the feet. I got to tell someone about Jesus, right? All this. This is the weapons that we use. The devil hates this weapon. Obama hates these, all right? The politicians hate the belt of truth, clearly. And they certainly hate the helmet of salvation, knowing you belong to Jesus. Right? The shield of faith is when a stupid atheist, oh, wait, that's redundant. When an atheist says, There ain't no God, we're all a big cosmic explosion accident that defies all laws of physics. Yeah. I don't even need the shield of faith to know you're an idiot, right? That's redonkulous. All right, but you've got to wear this stuff. You've got to use it. I'm going to talk about using it. I want to talk about the sword for just a minute. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay? More than ever, I'm going to talk about this in a second, the Bible has been handed over to us in this room to just jab people with. Jab them. Get them. Get them with a sword. Now, but for a guy, I had a 16 birthday once, and it was a sweet 16. And what I got for my sweet 16 birthday, I was just showing it the other day to defend against the bears, is a sword, a ninja sword, a stainless steel, very sharp, real ninja sword. Well, you know, army surplus ninja sword, right? So eventually I want to have the handle rebuilt out of real wood. I need some help with that. But anyway, with that real sword... I would practice sometimes, and just a cardboard box. I'm getting all this sword. A cardboard box. All I had to do is hold the sword out like this, one hand even, it's a two-handed sword, and just go like this. And it would penetrate any cardboard box up to two to three inches. Just the sheer weight and mass, just an, and it would punch right through anything. No effort. None of the movies where you're going, Whoa! none of that. Just And it would penetrate just about anything. Crazy. Crazy weapon. Okay? The Bible's even worse. And it feels worse when you use it against people. Let me explain. Beforehand, though, you've got to use it. Here's a cartoon. And this is what the world's going to do. And I'm going to give you a live example. It would be foolish for a soldier to remove his armor and weapons before battle. Here's a cartoon. Uh, throw down your sword! Okay. Right? And nowadays, sure, we can talk about Earth's origin, but let's leave the Bible out of it. Oh, okay. Don't leave the Bible out when you talk about science. Don't leave the Bible out when you talk about politics. Don't leave the Bible out when you're talking about babies and whether or not they should be murdered. Okay? Don't leave the Bible out. Use it. And when I mean use it, I mean quote it. 
Because you or I are not smart enough to follow the stupidity of politicians and our friends who are atheists who are making up the morality based off TV shows. Okay? We can't keep up with that. And it's stupid to try. Here's an example right out of my own Facebook page. After the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court rejected God, defied God, and made a sin legal in all 50 states, everyone started to change their profile pictures with rainbow colors. Now, on Facebook, that is a social media. That might as well be the newspaper. Every time you publish something on a social media, you are publishing. You have the same power as TV or the newspaper. Okay, So you always want to keep that in mind. There's no such thing as private social media. So when people started changing their pictures and bam, and they're, they're shouting out to the world, blow off God, we're not going to follow your moral code, evil wins, ha ha ha, is what they're doing. So I would take certain verses of scripture, Romans 1, 26, 27, and 32, cut and pasted them and put them. Everyone who was my friends who posted that nonsense, they got Bible verses right back. If you're going to support and proclaim and push evil, I'm going to push good right back at you. It's time to get some positive peer pressure back out there. So here's the response. When I responded to this, people flocked in to protect this person. This was a family member. okay? And here's a quote from one of these people in response to me using Bible verses against evil. Jeff, instead of quoting Scripture at people, why wouldn't I quote Scripture at people? Right? You might try getting to know them. This guy didn't know this was my cousin. Right? Hearing their story and loving them. Anyone with a basic Sunday school education or an internet connection can cite Scripture out of content to support their personal views. He's claiming I cited it out of content. Now remember, this person changed her profile picture to the rainbow colors. So here's what I put. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And by... And by them, by men likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And down at 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That was spot on. Scripture, right in context. And I'm being accused of the message of Christ is not about judgment or condemnation. Is that judgment and condemnation? I just gave some Bible verses that are objectively true to somebody declaring evil and supporting evil. Who's loving who? Then look at this quote. No matter your opinion of anyone's sexual orientation, just clobbering them with scripture verses isn't going to do anything but make you feel superior to them. I was terrified to do that, knowing people would come after me. I wasn't going, <laughs> well, aren't I better than them? Well, I'm just going to show them how smart a pants I am. No, I was terrified knowing the rebuke of the world was going to come after me by standing up for righteousness. 
And But what I love this part, and I quoted it back to him, just clobbering them with the scripture, that's really the big idea. They didn't like the Bible being used. We can debate any sin you want. Just don't bring in God's word. And that's the big idea. For me to quote scripture from someone shouting they're a sinner and celebrating it, and so I gave them Bible verses showing that that's evil, it's clobbering them with scripture, and that's how they felt by it. That's a good sign that they felt it. All is just taking that little sword and going, boop, clobbering them with scripture. God's word is sharp and active, and it does its thing. Okay, tons of stories like that. So here's my application for you. The most deadly weapon you all have is cut and paste. It is a furious weapon. And you can do it right on your phone. So as you're going down your Facebook and your friends say something incredibly stupid and evil, you in righteousness and love and commanded by God to go to your Bible app Select the verses. Oh, God has an answer to that. Cut and paste it right into that news feed. Bam! Right? You did it right there while you're eating your cereal. Just fired off Bible truth right into the world. It's an amazing weapon. All right? Back in the old day, they had to memorize Scripture. We only have to kind of remember where to look for it. And you know what can help you find it? Google. I have a Bible app. Blueletterbible.org is where I get all my Bible studies from. But when I try to find a verse reference, I'm not sure. Blueletterbible.org cannot find it. But Google nails it every time. I go over to Google. Where is that event where Daniel sees an angel who's held up by another angel? Something ambiguous. Google runs right to Oh, it's Daniel chapter 10. So now I flip back over to, to Blue Letter Bible. Grab at Daniel chapter 10 and it's in. Just like that. I'm telling you, you have, we as the Christians have never had an easier time to share Bible truth. And it hurts people because it heals people that want to be healed. Jesus to those that are perishing is the scent of death, but to those who are being saved, it's the yumminess, it's the goodness. So let me ask you, we're almost done. How about your heart? Where are you at? Do you want something more than you see everybody else doing? Do you want to not go with the flow of stupidity that leads to suffering and death? Do you have a deepest desire in the things of God? Does that stuff turn you on? Are you interested in that? Uh, I hope so, because that means the Holy Spirit's working in you. And of course, it always ends with this. Um, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this is what it looks like. There's your spiritual compass. You're either doing it or you're not. You're either obeying or you're not. It's really that simple. You either are worshiping or you're not. Ministry, evangelizing, fellowshipping, and being a disciple and going and get a disciple. We're all commanded to be these things and to do these things. That's our compass. What's your compass pointing you to? Let's pray. Father, that was a lot. I ask that this something stuck in everybody's head and in their heart and that um, they would most importantly know that there is so much that you have to offer all of us. 
so much. Please let people get excited about you and follow you because that's all that matters in the end. Be glorified. Amen. From Bible's websites to theology, apps to blogs, there are so many fantastic resources for Christians. Get the latest news and reviews on what is out there to help you grow in Christ. The Deacon.com. Truth is here.